Have you ever had the shock and awe moment and it's bad? Like, really bad. Like when you drive into someone else's car because the light turned green and the, re- the green arrow was supposed to turn green when the other light turns green. That's how they work. If anything, it's the, right, it's the green arrow first and then the green light. So certainly if you're sitting, I mean hypothetically speaking, if you're sitting in the, the second slot in the green arrow and you see the light turn green over here, obviously that one's going to turn green. So if you have to set your water bottle down and you hit the gas and then you run into the car in front of you, you know, that's a shock and awe moment, uh, especially when the other person, you know, gets really upset because they can't see past the tiny little scratch in their brand new GMC Acadia. So, um, yeah, shock and awe moments can be bad as well. And I had a bunch of shock and awe moments this week that all seemed to point in the same direction. And I like to call those moments um, God's grace moments. Because even when they're hard ones, there's still this loving Father who gives us repeat attempts at seeing the same thing. And today, I hope that you have these repeat attempt moments to see the same thing. Because we started restoration when we started restoration. We started because we believed that God wants a relationship with everyone in such a way that we're transformed in how we see ourselves and how we see our situation and how we see the world. Even if it means there's some shock and awe moments that happen moment after moment. Because how we see determines how we think. And how we think determines how we act. And how we act determines our life. I know of no better story than um, this one that I read a couple weeks ago about this businessman named Greg Horn. Now, Greg worked for Hershey Company, and he had a six-state region that he was like the district rep of. And so he had to travel all the time. It was a good job. He liked the company, but he wanted to be with his family more. He wanted to travel less. And he really wanted to make an impact in his community and with some employees. And so he started and opened a grocery store, the Pay Less Food Center in Kentucky. And it started to go really well for him. In fact, he wanted to improve as a leader, so he decided to go in March of one spring. He decided to go to a leadership conference for the weekend, learn lots of good stuff, tried to fly home, bad storms, didn't think anything of it, flight was canceled, went out the next day flew into the nearby airport that he had planned to fly to the day before, and as he gets in his car and drives home, he starts hearing the weather reports. And the weather reports talk about how this heavy, heavy, heavy rain had caused flooding in three of the major rivers in this Kentucky area. One of the rivers mentioned went through his city, his town where his store was. So he started to get a little nervous, and he decided he was going to go straight for the store Instead of checking in at home, that's another story altogether, but he drives to the store. It takes a little while to get there. In fact, he can't get there. He can get about 200 yards away before the waters are before him. And he steps out of his car, and he sees a store, well, he sees the roof of his store and the sign that says, Payless Food Center, and two inches of the pole. 
everything else is completely underwater. He's totally demoralized, so he gets in the car and he, he just starts driving home, except he can't get home. The waters are everywhere, so he actually has to drive over an hour away to stay with his sister in Lexington, Kentucky, and for three days, he's stuck at his sister's. Long enough, though, to call the insurance company and find out that he has every kind of insurance except the one that almost none of us have, the one that's the most expensive, the flood coverage. There will be no financial relief for him. Two more days go by before he can even get in the store. He's able to get home after three days, but it takes five days for him to get in the store, and when he does get in the store, he faces complete devastation. I mean, he sees $500,000 worth of spoiled, soggy inventory. His cash registers all are waterlogged. They're having filthy water flow out of them as he tries to open them. And a 500-pound freezer that holds bags of ice that normally sits over here got lifted up by the floodwaters and sit down right on a checkout lane. It's the kind of thing, at least he says, he tells the story later, it's the kind of thing that would make anyone just shut the doors and walk away. Now, if that was you, if that was your business, what would you do? It's going to cost a million dollars easily if you want to fix this. Or you could just file bankruptcy, walk away, close the doors. And no one, I think no one, would call you any lesser for it. This is an act of God tragedy that caused my business to fail. I'm not a failure, though. That's true. Except Greg said he had a choice. As he sat there in the midst of not having flood coverage and seeing the devastation, he's like, less than a week ago, I went to this business leadership conference, and I learned that, that failure is way more about what happens in me than what happens to me. In fact, it's not the size of my problem, but my perception of the problem. Maybe I need to change how I see this situation. So when you have shock and awe moments that are not good, do you see failure? Or do you see an opportunity to fail forward? See, that's what I think changing how we see is all about. We've started this series called Failing Forward, and it's really this opportunity for us to learn how to let God move in our mistakes because failing doesn't make you a failure, but that's part of this step that we talked about last week of learning how to redefine success and failure. Failures are moments. They're not people. They're events, they're, but they're not lifetimes. And if we believe that Jesus is in everything we do, then success and failure really have to be connected to him. Forget, failure might just be forgetting to follow and trust God. And success would be trusting and following God. But as we move through this, we have to move past just a redefinition. We have to look at a new way to see. And here's where I think we get this. 
We started last week with the story of Abram or Abraham in Genesis 12. And if you have your Bible, you want to turn to Genesis 13. In Genesis 13, we see God teaching two people how they see. Because before you can change how you see, you have to actually see how you see. But hey, when there's lots of shock and awe moments that all point to the same thing, let me tell you, if we had an hour, I could tell you the five things that I found out that I saw in the midst of a car accident or housework or family things or a wedding. I had the opportunity to see how I see. We get the same idea here. Genesis 13. Starting in verse 5. It says, So Abram left Egypt and traveled north to the Negev, along with his wife, Lot, or along with his wife and Lot and everything they owed. Okay? That's the start of the story. They come back to the land. In verse 5, it says, Lot, who was traveling with Abram, he had also become very wealthy in Egypt with flocks and sheep and goats and herds of cattle and many tents. But the land could not support them both. And Abraham and Lot and all their herds and all their flocks and all their servants living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. At the time, Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in this land. So finally, Abraham said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we're close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. So take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. If you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land to the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. So Lot took a long, hard look at the land in front of him. And he took a look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in every direction towards Zoar. The whole area was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley and settled to the land of, um, chose the whole, whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. And he went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. Now after seeing that Lot had gone, after they had parted company, the Lord said to Abram, look, as far as you can see in every direction, north, south, east, and west, all of this land I am giving you, as far as you can see, to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. So go and walk the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents to Hebron and settled near the oak belonging to Mamre, and he built another altar to the Lord. You pray with me for a moment? God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this story 
I thank you for the stories that you tell us throughout our weeks, especially the ones that shock and awe us, that get us our attention. Help us to change how we see. Help us, God, to see how we see so that we can see how we think, so that we can act in faith and follow you. Amen. Now, as you look at this story here, I'm not sure if you think, wow, I'm, I can't relate to that. I don't have any herdsmen, and I haven't been in a quarrel with my uncle lately. But if you think about it, just look at the facts again. This first one, like the land not being able to support them. Have you ever had moments in your life where really you have enough, but it's not enough? Or maybe you've had points where there's competition, where there shouldn't be competition. Whether it's fighting in the house or fighting between employees or fighting between friends, there's this competition where there shouldn't be. Or maybe there's parasites and Canaanites in the land. Maybe there's people that are adversaries that are just waiting right outside of your life, right outside of your situation to take advantage of you when you're distracted or discouraged or depressed. Ever have moments like that? I know I do. And when you, if you have, how have you felt? What did you do? How did you think? And how did you see? See, the moment after I hit the lady in the car, I got out of the car and I wanted to make sure she was okay. She was obviously not okay. I mean, she was mentally traumatized. She said she'd never been in an accident before, and I said, I'll give you plenty of time. I tried to see her as someone who was hurting, someone who, who was very surprised. And I said what no one should say. I'm sorry, that's totally my fault. Because that's not what you do. It says it on your insurance card. I looked. <laughs> You're supposed to see this as an accident and let the insurance companies fight it out. That's what you do. But I didn't do that. Don't worry, I made many mistakes, so I'm not saying I did all right. But as a kid, I remember being the smallest in my friend group. And as the smallest in the friend group, you're like the runt of the litter. So you go last in food lines, so there's almost never any left. And on those rare occasions that I got to go through the line first and got to pile up my plate, uh, I would have people walk by and take food at their leisure and just all the time. I'm like, I had this huge chip that I was saving. They're like, oh, saving that one for me. So now I get made fun of because I find myself at family reunions and at my own dinner table, and I eat like this. I have both arms around my food, and I'm protecting it. And I'm so thankful for the moments of family reunions where people made fun of me because I did not realize that that's how I saw my food. It's something I had to protect, something that someone might take, that I had to compete for. But I think there are moments like that in all of our lives whether it's about car accidents or food or whatever, there are adversaries that we see. There is competition that we see. And there is this idea 
that there is not enough. How do you respond in those situations? Now, let's look again at Abram and Lot. Two different ways to see. Let's start with Lot, verse 10. Lot looked around. In the Hebrew, it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. That's that idea of raw, God saying, I will cause you to see. He lifted up his eyes. He looked through the land. He inspected it carefully. He accepts the offer that Abram gives him to choose the land. Now, if you are, if you are Hebrew, actually any, any ancient culture in that time, the elder gets to choose first. Abram had every right to go first. Abram was giving a courtesy to his nephew, and he gladly accepts it. That's how Lot sees. If you're given the chance to go first, go first. Then he looks out over the land, he inspects it carefully, and he sees all the great qualities of the land to the east, and so he chooses the better land because that's how Lot sees When I'm given the chance to go first, I'm going to make sure I get the best one. Did your parents ever do that stupid rule where, you know, there's the last cookie left and they're like, okay, so you can break it in half and the person who breaks it, the other person gets to choose. That's a dumb rule. But you remember that? I use it now. But (laughs) that's how Lot sees. I'll, I'll break it in half and I'll pick. And I'm not knocking him because I probably would have done the same thing. But it also says this really interesting line that he settles in this land by the cities, the city of Sodom. I don't know what you know about Sodom, but pretend you don't know anything about Sodom and just catch that one line. The people there were extremely wicked in their sinning against the Lord. All those words mean the same thing. And when, when that happens in the ancient language, it's trying to emphasize something. Like, they're not just sinners. They're wicked sinners. They're not just wicked sinners. They're people who are extremely wicked in their sinning against God. Oh, I didn't know. I thought all sin was against God. No, this writer wants to emphasize this is how bad this is. And this isn't about, oh, look at those people in Sodom. This is about the writer trying to tell us how Lot sees He sees a city of advantage, a place where he could get more. It's risky. I would even say it's a little reckless. But when you see like Lot, by seeing with your own eyes, you say things like this. Oh, I won't be tempted by that sin. Or I won't be tempted by those people. I'm sure, I'm sure I can handle it. I'm, I'm strong in my faith. I won't participate in that, and it won't affect me. But the key is in seeing how Lot sees. Lot says something very, actually, it's, it's, I don't think it's anywhere else in Scripture. When he looks over the land and he sees how well watered it is, which would mean it's abundant, because remember, this is a dry, arid place. There's lots of desert. He says, oh, it looks like the garden of God. 
and it looks like the land of Egypt. If, if you are a Bible student, you know that God never connects Egypt and his garden. Nothing against the Egyptians. That just never happens. So what does it mean to connect the garden of God to the land of Egypt? What do we know about the garden of God? Anybody want to play? What do we know about the garden of God? Paradise, beautiful, perfect. There's a little bit of odd limits. God was there. What did what it was the refrain as the writer describes the garden of God after each day of creation? It was good. It was good. It was tov. That's the Hebrew. It was this goodness that kept going because there was abundance. But there wasn't just abundance. There was the potential for abundance. Like God put seeds in the ground and those sprouted up into trees and the seeds and the trees bared fruit and the fruit had seeds and the seeds would fall from the tree and the trees would then grow up from those seeds and an orchard would come up and the fruit would become abundant. It was exceedingly fruitful, exceedingly plentiful kind of sounds like the description of Sodom, except in the opposite sense. This is God's view of abundance. Not only material wealth, but wisdom, beauty, goodness, and an untainted relationship with God. I would love Garden of God experiences. Maybe you've had Garden of God experiences where God is so abundant where the wisdom is so full, where the beauty is so untainted, where there's almost a never-ending supply of not just wealth or wisdom, but this relationship with God. It's almost like flowing down, like gliding down a river. You're just in the flow. It's good. So, so well, then what does Egypt have that would be comparable. Remember, Egypt is the greatest civilization in the world at this time. They have all the wisdom of the world. They have huge amounts of wealth and no relationship with the one true God. They have plenty of gods, just not the Hebrew God, not Abram's God, not the God of our faith. I think maybe to liken the garden of God to the land of Egypt is to say, I can have all the wisdom and all the wealth of all the world without God. Except in Egypt, it's narrow. It's a desert. Except for the Nile River, it's never enough. That's how Lot sees. He sees with his own sight. There's been far too many times I have connected Egypt with the garden. We can't have true wisdom and true wealth without a relationship with God. And the great part is, this God longs for a relationship with us. And he doesn't care where you're from or who you are or what you've done. He invites everyone, including failures. Remember Abram? Like, 
We'll talk about how he sees. Remember when he was in Egypt, he saw the famine and he fled to Egypt and he cared about himself and his safety and his future. And he put his wife at risk. He did not handle the situation well. But Abram is learning how to see. He's learning a new way to see. Because when we can learn a new way to see, then we can learn a new way to think. And when we can learn a new way to think, we can learn a new way to act. And when we can learn a new way to act, we can learn how to truly live. This is how we fail forward. This is how we live out a faith with God. And so when we look at how God sees through Abram, now we find someone who sees a problem. There isn't enough. There's fighting inside. There's people waiting on the outside. And Abram says, you know what? I'm not going to be passive about this situation. I'm not going to pretend it's not here. I'm going to go engage that situation. I'm going to go face that problem. And I'm going to face it head on. But I'm going to believe that God is with me, that God loves me, that God is going to provide for me. And that his promises are true. So, Lot, you go pick the land that you want. I trust that God's going to take care of me. You want to pick first? That's fine. You want to pick the better one? That's fine. I trust that God's going to take care of me. It's not passive, though. It's active. It's seeing by faith. And it's only after Abram parts with Lot that God shows him what he sees. Only after he leaves Lot does God say, now you lift up your eyes and see. You go take a long, hard look with my sight. I will show you the future reality in your present situation. Because when you see by faith, it goes way beyond your circumstances and way beyond your present. And God says, look out over the land. To the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. The only problem is where he was standing. I think we have a picture of it. We'll come back to the other verses. But where he's standing here, you can't see the whole land that God just described. There's the uh, Samaritan mountains and the Galilean mountains. They're in the way. And God says, I want to show you what you can't yet see. And it's only after Lot leaves. Now, you still with me? Everybody still with me? Okay, who's Lot? Abram's nephew. Right, right, right. So, So what is Lot? If you do a little study on, on the word Lot, it's, it's a verb, it's fluid. It kind of means to envelop. It molds to whatever shape it needs to mold to. I kind of get a picture of the Over the Hedge. You remember that movie, Over the Hedge, where the squirrel like goes everywhere and he looks like he drinks you know, uh, those five-hour energies like on the hour? Um, that's Lot, Anxious, fluid, always looking for the next best thing. To see like Lot is to be always looking for the next best thing. And, and remember, Lot was Abram's nephew from his father's family. Go back to Genesis 12. Verse 1, when God calls Abram into the, into the land that he's going to cause him to see, he says, now I want you to go from your country, your people, and your father's household. I want you to go forward or go forth and leave your father's household. But who was Lot? Lot was from his father's household. 
God never, ever, ever in the scriptures approves of Abram bringing Lot with. He doesn't, he doesn't dismiss it, but he doesn't approve of it. So why did he bring Lot? Remember, Abram's name means exalted father. And he's 75 years old, and his wife is 65 years old when they leave. And they have no children. Ever have a nickname that you hated? It's like this constant reminder. I have one right now. It's this constant reminder of being invalidated or of being not enough or of being hated. Abram, exalted father, who's your kids? I don't have any. Lot was his validation. Lot was the thing he could look to and say, see, God's not finished with me. See, my name means something. See, I'm going to be okay. Oh, and Lot's his backup plan. Lot's his, if God doesn't come through on this promise, when I left my land and when I left my country and when I left my father's house, then I'll have no one to give it to. Lot's his backup plan. Except what do we know? God gives lots of second chances, but God doesn't work off backup plans because God never fails. Never, ever, ever. If you're working off a backup plan, there's a good chance that you're seen by your own sight. But God is teaching Abram to see. And it's only after he leaves his past in his past that he sees by faith. What do you need to look out into the land and see? What's the future reality that God is calling you to? What is that thing that's in your past that should be in your past? I think God gives us time so that we can bury things in it. What do you need to let go of? Is your lot a job that you really just need to leave? Or is lot a friend that's not helping you see how God would see? Or is maybe lot a way of seeing and you need to let it go so that you can really truly see how God sees. Ask God what your lot is. After he leaves, he looks out into the land and God says, Abram, I want you to go and I want you to see all this land to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. If you can see it, it's yours. Go claim it. Take that step of action, that next step of faith, and go into the land. It says, go and walk through the length and the breadth. Go walk through in every direction. This is the land I'm giving you. See, after we leave our past and our past, we've got to take a next step. We might not know the whole way. We might not have the action plan all figured out. But if we want to fail forward, if we want to succeed in life with God, we have to at least take one step of faith. Abram is taking a step of faith by walking into the land. 
There might be a situation in your life right now where God is saying, take the step. I've told you what it is. I've shown it to you. You've left your past in your past. Now go. What are you afraid of? I'm with you. Do you not see it? I'm giving you the future reality, even though you're in your present circumstances. And God never fails. He will come through. He wants us to step out in faith. This Greg guy, when he looked at the situation, the million dollars that it was going to cost if he actually tried to fix this thing up of his own money, he could have seen the, the problem in dollars, or he could have seen it in the matter of days or weeks or months that it would take, or he could have seen it in the emotional impact that it would cost him. But instead, he saw it in the lives of the people who worked for him. He couldn't get into the store for five days. Sixteen days later, they worked around the clock. They took 22 truckloads of ruined merchandise out of the store. The the structure was still sound. They redid it all, retiled the whole thing. In 16 days, they reopened. Eighty people got their jobs back and had the potential now to earn money to fix up their own lives personally. Now, he could have said, I'm so broke, or I'm so broken, which was maybe true. But he was still bold. He saw that sight that God wanted. He saw by faith, and he took that step of action. Guys, I'm, I'm just a guy who's a pastor, and you're just someone who God loves. I don't care how broken you are. Go be bold. God loves you. God's called you. And God wants to see wonderful things for your life. If you're hanging on to something from your past, today, leave it in your past. Pray with me. God, thank you for stories that at first seemed to be about sheep and herdsmen and fighting and for speaking to our lives. Whether it's shock and awe moments, God, or just the subtle voice of you saying, you can leave that in your past. I have a plan for that or I have a plan for them. God, help us to leave those things and to take a step of faith in the way you want us to go, to make a huge difference, not just in the lives of ourselves, but in the lives of those around us, because you are with us, because you want us to be bold, even if we feel broken. In Jesus' name, amen.